In sports, no two stories are the same. The Other Pros Podcast takes an in-depth look at the sports industry and the individuals who work in it. Hosts John Ganther and Mike Gambardella interview some of the industry's top coaches, administrators, and athletes. With a combined 30 years of experience working in athletics, Ganther and Gambo offer their perspectives on how sports operate behind the scenes. From coaches to trainers to athletic directors, no titles and no sports are off the table. Without further ado, here's your host, John Ganther. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Other Pros podcast. I'm your host, John Ganther. In this week's episode, Mike and I speak with Jeff Ruder, a writer for The Athletic who covers soccer for that publication. Um, in this week's episode, we talk to him about all things soccer uh, from the U.S. men's national team um, to soccer that's going on in the United Soccer League, um, specifically with the San Diego Loyal. Um, over the last couple of weeks, um, the San Diego Loyal have forfeited two of their matches. Uh, the first match was forfeited after the match had ended um, due to one of um, their players being called a racial slur um, by the other team. Uh, they had forfeited the game after the fact, after the coaching staff had been, become aware of the incident. Um, in the second match, uh, they forfeited the match at halftime of their match against the Phoenix rising um, because of a player on the rising uttering a homophobic slur towards one of their uh, loyal players who's openly gay. Um, so we get into that whole incident and situation, um, the ramifications of it, um, both with the USL and with you know sports in general, how this decision will impact um, games and sporting events going forward. Um, because this, as far as I can tell, it's really unprecedented. For a professional team to give up two results um, for words that were uttered on the, uh, the field of play. Um, so we talked to him about that at length in this uh, in this episode. Uh, we get a lot of good insight for him from him on everything that's going on, um, you know, with soccer and you know the future of soccer and how the USL has handled uh, their recent incidents. Um, Hope you all enjoy. Um, here's the interview with Jeff Ruder. Uh, we'll dive. Uh, we'll dive right on in. Um, so the first part of it, we like to just let our guests kind of tell us a little about yourself, how you got to where you are writing for the Athletic. You know, did you always want to cover sports? Was it were you like always a soccer specific guy, or kind of what's your story? Yeah, it's um, it's very organic. I will say, I entered college. I went to Hamlin University which is a uh, private liberal arts school in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, kind of the D3 if you're looking at it in terms of athletics, which no one should look at Hamlin in terms of athletics, uh, <laughs> if you're trying to have any sort of a successful career. So I, I went there actually on a, a theater scholarship and ended up converting my theater degree into a playwriting degree by the end. I was doing a lot of anthrop anthropology classes. I was doing a lot of English classes. Uh, trying to kind of flesh that out, but I never took a journalism class. I never took, uh, I never worked for the student paper, um, which was great. When I went back, I was brought in to talk to the student paper uh, after I got my salary gig at The Athletic, and one of the questions was, why didn't you do this? And I had no good answer at all. 
which was not good. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be welcome back to talk to the Oracle anytime soon. But um, no, I mean, like I, I've grown up on soccer. I grew up on sports. I was a big, I mean, I'm the least hockey literate Minnesotan you'll probably ever talk to in terms of people working within sports. But it, I mean, it was the NBA, it was the NFL, it was um, Major League Baseball, especially growing up. And then it, it became soccer. I mean, I would catch it on ESPN with like the Champions League and Major League Soccer as those broadcasts picked up. I would watch every single World Cup, men's and women's. Um, and uh, I, I just, I stuck with the sport closer than any other, I think, just in terms of my interest. Um, I was a season ticket holder for Minnesota United when they were in the second division of uh, U.S. soccer uh, before they went to Major League Soccer. And my, my brother and I would go to these games and there was this guy who overheard the two of us talking. We we're probably a few beers in. I don't remember if we were talking about the game in front of us or if we were talking about Major League Soccer or the Premier League or something. And, and the guy was... Uh, just kind of leaned over and said, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. And I said, thanks. And he said, you know, I, I have a podcast. My co-host just dropped off. I need someone who can step in for the next couple of weeks until I can find a real co-host. Uh, are you able to hop on? And I said, yeah, that's no problem. So I, I ended up on this show called Two United Fans with Nachika Karnik. Um, ended up staying on as that real co-host he was looking for. And, and we were just, I mean, you know, it, it's a show called Two United Fans, right? Like we're just kind of BSing about the league that they were in, about the team, um, whatever really piqued our interest that week. And a website called Northern Pitch reached out saying, you know, we can't pay you, but do you write? Of course, I'm just getting out of college at this time and uh, very interested in writing more. So I, I'm just writing for free. I'm podcasting for free. It's a hobby. I'm, I'm working not what I wanted to do out of college. I'm working at an IT service desk. And uh, people kept reading because Minnesota United was getting ready to go to major league soccer, which means more people wanted to learn about the club. And so there were, you know, the, the two newspapers that are still in the twin cities and us rebranding to 55 one kind of became the, the, the destination for it. So from there, uh, people were reading more of my stuff and saying, Hey, you should pitch MLS's website, ended up writing for them for almost a full season. Uh, you should pitch the Guardian, 442, ESPN, all of this stuff. And so I, I just started. And what's interesting about covering American soccer is uh, specialists who, who really are zeroed in on the sport are probably harder to find covering American soccer than they are any other of the major American team sports. I think that there are a lot of people who, whether it's an SP Nation blog or um, you know, their own websites or whatever. A lot of people are covering every single team in the other kind of quote unquote big four leagues and the WNBA included uh, to a greater extent now. But as far as people who chose to land on the soccer beat and weren't assigned there because their preferred sport was being covered by someone else, it's a little bit of a rarity. And that was especially the case about five years ago. And so I was able to kind of work into these um, channels with my interest, my writing style, my, my access, whatever you want to put it. Um, buried my my fandom for the Minnesota team when they went to MLS, which is very easy to do. Um, and uh, just started covering it objectively, started covering nationally, and The Athletic reached out in 2018, wanting some freelance coverage just like once a month is what they were talking to me about to cover the Minnesota team. And uh, readers loved it, so it went to once a week, and then they wanted more, so it went to twice a week, three a week, and then I was able to quit my day job and go full-time freelance for about... 10 months, I would say, before I got a salary job in April last year, 2019. And I've been a, a staff writer covering North American soccer for The Athletic ever since. 
Congratulations. That's an awesome story and amazing that, you know, going from playwright, not involved in student newspaper. To... There's no salary jobs for playwrights. <laughs> no, you're not really. Yeah, this is this has been a tremor, like a tremendous kind of relief to my parents, I'm sure, <laughs> to see. I am going in with this degree in 2050. I have no idea where it's going to end up. And suddenly now it's yeah, healthcare and benefits and all that stuff. Which is really funny because I think John and I's experience through all of this is our parents being like, would you please do something else than sports? There's no money in it. Don't do that. And you've actually kind of taken the end around to make right. it work for you in a sense. Yeah. And I mean, it's possible, man. I mean, like there's, I talk to a lot of college students. I really do. And I talk to a lot of postgrad students, young writers, um, because it, it, my, my path is so accessible I think for a young writer it's yes freelancing it's having an interest for the sport and the background to be able to write about it um, all of these sorts of things where a lot of people can do that right like I'm not pretending that like every single step of what I did was unique and that it was something that I whatever like 10,000 hours my ways to but I, I think that there's something to it where it's it's that sort of authentic genuine interest where it isn't just well I studied this so I should do this and I'm assuming the chips will fall in an advantageous fashion for me. I, I don't think that you can really go into the industry thinking anything is going to be handed to you, um, except for maybe an internship slinging coffee at your local newspaper. That's pretty much the only thing that can be guaranteed, um, as, as well as some long nights. That's also pretty guaranteed. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, look, it's it really is something that can be uh, replicated. It's an industry where they want to it wants to get younger frankly it does it wants to get more diverse um and, and i think that specialists are kind of the next wave it's, it's less about being someone who where you show up and you say i have a tangential knowledge of the local political scene i have a, a, a kind of a basic knowledge of every sports team in the market of this uh i don't know business sector like you know you really they want more specialized coverage they want people who can kind of brand themselves as experts i guess for lack of a, a better term um and that bodes well because the number of outlets while the traditional outlets yes they are shrinking newspapers of course like chief among any but it's not that there aren't places to write it's that it is a broader but more in-depth approach to covering what's going on in the world today, whether it's an entertainment style uh, arena like sports, or it is something that is like day-to-day -day news, like the rest of coverage usually. And, yeah. and while good friend of the podcast, Chris Carroll, will be very upset to hear that papers are going by the wayside. The man <laughs> yeah. lives and dies by his, you know, New York Times. But I think you hit on a great point of, you know, that specialized coverage, you know, finding your niche market and now places like the athletic or you said SB nation, other places that you can really hone in and zero in. When did you kind of realize, as you mentioned, you know, you might've had to figure out hockey without really having an interest or a background in it just because you were going to be a sports writer, but you've mm. really been able to zero in on that soccer market. When did you kind of figure out that was going to be your avenue? Um, I, I don't think, I don't know how, how long I really went into this thinking that it would end the way it did. And, and I say end as if like it's, 
I, I've got a job. I, now, now the real challenge is going to be holding job security for the next 40 years or however long it needs to work. Uh, it, it is so far from ended. But I, I, I don't think I really ever had a good read on where I would be going or that, that I would be able to get a staff role when I turned 25 years old, which is how it ended up working out for me. I, I, I don't think that I really had that until discussion started if I'm being completely honest I think that there was a part of it where there are so many soccer focused writers who have been covering major league soccer in particular for longer than I have in a freelance capacity and have had bylines that I don't for example or you know like write for Grantland or whatever you know that like I will never have a Grantland byline right um and, and that's for better and sometimes for worse um but I I think that it really it's so hard to tell because there are so many kind of false starts in terms of that job hunt where it's not always about the credentials you have. Sometimes it's just about who you know and about the work you did most recently. Like if you wrote something that went gangbusters and really kind of captured the zeitgeist for the two hours that you can really maximize having that sort of narrative uh, realistically these days with the news cycle. Um, if, if Even then, I, I think that you know, I was freelancing full time in 2018, started 2019 as well. And it was, it was fine. I mean, like it was, it was good. I was working consistently. I was able to pay rent, but tax time really hurt me. And mm -hmm. I think that after I saw how much I had to pay and pay back in taxes, how many like thousands of dollars I owed, despite making less than I would have made at any other salary job I probably would have found um, outside of journalism. I, I think that that's when I kind of realized that like 2019 was going to be the last year unless I got a salary job. I think I entered the year very earnest saying like, look, I'm young, but at the same point, like I'm young, which means that I kind of need to be starting to try to work towards avenues where I feel like there's going to be some sort of prospect for me. And, and I can't let myself for me personally, because at that time I was also engaged. Now I'm married. Um, we're not going to have kids, but I think that there's still sort of like a, we want to plan for the future. We want to be able to have some sort of consistency, uh, in what we're going to be able to do between Kate and myself. And um, 2019 really looked like if it's not going to happen, then I just have to kind of find what the next path is going to be. And luckily it ended up working out in a way where I won't have to do that work for hopefully a few more years, touch wood. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it really is uh, when you approach it from a freelancer standpoint, you work so hard not to get your hopes up about specific outlets unless you've been given a reason to put all of your eggs in that basket. Yeah. Um, so we've, you know, obviously just learned a lot about you. Um, you know, your body. Yeah, talking to Sorry, you <laughs> no, which is great. Um, uh, so, you know, you obviously have a big background in writing, you know, as a playwright, you're obviously a huge soccer fan. Are we going to see any uh, movies or documentaries yeah. from Jeff Reuter or is that on the horizon? You know, you're a freelance writer, so this could be right up your alley. Right. I, I mean, documentaries, I think, seem most overlap, most friendly to an overlap sort of thing. Um, I, I would love to get back into writing something fictional. It's, it's been years since I've been able to do that. I think that the, the, the kind of two-edged sword with freelance is that you're always writing and you're always trying to write about something that seems timely. Uh, but, but the other thing is anything that's not going to immediately result in a boost in your paycheck is probably going to have to fall off your radar. Right. Um, I mean, like there's still some stuff that I've been working on for, or that I was working on years ago that I might be able to revisit and kind of retouch. 
Um, we'll see how that all goes. Honestly, I would like to. I think that that feels like it's going to have to be something I do in the dead of a Minnesota winter when there isn't being soccer uh, taking my time. Uh, if there's going to be anything at all in the near future. Hey, those winter, those winters are long, so you know you'll have some time. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> if you've never been here, you have no idea how long these winters are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was looking at on the USL website and the MLS um, website because I was just curious into how many teams there are now because I feel like every year there's at least like three or four new franchises at both levels. Correct. Um, how has it evolved in your opinion, you know, the expansion of both the MLS and the USL um, and kind of what are your, in your opinion, what are the factors um, for teams just popping up across the country? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the evolution is, it, it is a genuine progression in not just quantity, but quality. I think that teams are getting much smarter about who they trust to either own them or lead them within the organization. If you're talking about a CEO on the business side or a sporting director slash head coach on, on the actual on-field side, um, they, they've gotten much more savvy. I think that the days where you would just see like a player play for 10 years for an MLS club and immediately retire and get a head coaching job in a professional rank, those are going to be far more rare than they used to be. Um, so they're getting more sophisticated in that sense. I think that a big part of why there is such a desire to grow um, is because of the upcoming Men's World Cup in 2026 in the North, in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Uh, I, I think that if you talk to any any team within the professional ranks, and I'll throw in NISA as well as another professional uh, operation in North America, any of them will say something vaguely. They, they, they might not outwardly say we're working towards that World Cup as like a big watershed moment, but all of them will highlight something of a five or six year plan ending in 2026. And it's because they, they really truly believe that while there has been steady uh, if unspectacular growth year over year over the past, you know, half decade, uh, I think that they're very confident that there will still be um, like this, the second boom of sorts uh, once that World Cup hits. The, the real question, of course, then becomes what if it doesn't, right? And, and I think that they're approaching it as if soccer at the end of that 26 World Cup will be the third most popular or Major League Soccer will be the third most popular men's league in the country. I think that their, their aim, based off of the numbers and the metrics that they're seeing in terms of viewership, in terms of attendance, uh, fan fervor, some of these sort of immeasurable metrics, which is an oxymoron in itself, I think that they're looking at Major League Baseball and the NHL as two leagues that they can challenge in the near future, especially the NHL. Um, the question, of course, becomes like, what happens if it doesn't? And what if you don't overtake it? And, and I think that's when you're going to see a lot of owners on the flip side, where instead of trying to start a team in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, Omaha, Nebraska, suddenly those teams are looking and saying, oh, are we really going to do this now that we're not going to suddenly get rich quick? Uh, so the next decade is going to be the consolidation decade. But yes, I think that there's no other way to look at the decade of the 2010s in soccer without calling it the expansion decade. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I saw that there, I think there's 20, maybe there's 28 MLS teams. You can correct me. I think 35 USL teams. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's 26 playing teams in MLS. There will be okay. 28. Okay. Um, and then they're working on expansion for 29 and 30 uh, right now, inevitably. Uh, the USL is at 35 teams in the second division, 12 teams in the third division, and growing every single year. 
case. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to have upwards of, if not close to a hundred teams, you know, in, in soccer um, by the time, you know, in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. Expansion, I think, is is dead on, and, and we've really seen, you know, the growth of soccer across the U.S. I think, you know, for me specifically, you know, as, you know, a, a guy who grew up on, you know, essentially baseball and football, uh, some basketball here, quickly found out I was terrible at that sport. But, you know, <laughs> soccer being ingrained at a young age, an early thing, an easy thing to do. Um, but then it starts to grow in popularity and you see that. And, you know, I went to St. John's, you know, the year after they went to the national championship and started to really realize, you know, what good soccer was and how that kind of grew. Um, and now, you know, with MLS the Boone and taking World Cup into that and World Cup fever, um, do you, you talked about, you know, that growth into 26, what do you see for kind of 22 in that first step and kind of where the U S might play into that? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, qualification for the, the 2022 world cup, if you're purely just looking at it on the field, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to, to sort out. They've already had to postpone how some of the sequencing would work. To qualify out of North America, usually what they'll do is they'll weed it down to the top six teams in the region, and then they'll have something like a kind of a, you play every team home and home, and then the best teams, the three best teams automatically qualify, and the fourth place team will usually play like the fifth best team out of South America and inevitably lose every single time, but <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> um, so I think that... I mean, first, let's, let's keep in mind, the men failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup in Russia. And, and there's still been kind of a, a reconsolidation in terms of, like, that veteran core from that group has been retiring or kind of forced out of the national team pool. Whereas that, the, the group that you would expect to be leading the charge right now, the players who are, like, 28 or, you know, 26 to 30 years old, that generation never showed up. That generation never really became as good as their predecessors or certainly not nearly as good as the generation that's followed them. Um, so what you're seeing now is that the team, I would say their best eight players are 23 and under at this point, which is, which is really encouraging if you're looking for 22 and you're looking for 26. Um, the hard part is that you still have to worry about games in 21. And, and some of these players are going to be 17, 18 years old and might be asked to start like a, a pivotal game in Costa Rica uh, against a very like, not necessarily as talented, but a more cohesive, more battle hardened group um, with th that Tico's team. Uh, and suddenly you're going to be saying, hey, Giovanni Reina, hey, um, uh, Josh Sargent, like we need you to step in and play when they haven't even been regular starters in some cases like Josh Sargent's for their club. So it's going to be kind of an untested group. There is a chance that they flame out of the second straight World Cup, which then would be calamitous in terms of, a, uh, you know, ahead of 26 because they'll automatically qualify. Um, but as a country, I think that that 2018 World Cup, it did change how a lot of media outlets treated men's soccer in the States. I think that, I mean, like I lost writing gigs and, and some publications that I was writing for for money pretty regularly. Uh, stopped covering soccer in the United States because they weren't one of the 32 teams to make a World Cup. Um, so th the industry can't handle or would would definitely suffer 
specifically my side of the industry would suffer from another missed qualification. But um, yeah, I mean, what you've seen then is that the youth movement, uh, like you said, like how accessible it can be for most kids, depending where you live, um, them suddenly getting more into the game. And now you're starting to see the generation that maybe grew up going to MLS games are starting to come up and either play in MLS or get signed very young to play in Europe. Um, all of these things are very good things. The question will be how much that momentum continues. And then, of course, seeing if 2018 ends up playing a long-term effect in that next generation of kids. And you hit 2018 and you use the word, you know, calamitous. And it was really tough to not see the U.S. in a World Cup. In your view, was it more just the talent, the coaching, just culturally, the buy-in? You're just not getting the athletes to go that way? Or is it some kind of middle point of all those things? Yeah, I think it was arrogance. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, Mike, I think that the reason that the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup in 2018 is because they assumed that because they had qualified for every single tournament since 1990, uh, which at that point is seven straight, I think it was just assumed that they're one of the three best. And anytime anyone will look at CONCACAF, which is the North American and Central American and Island Nations Confederation, every discussion about who's the best team in CONCACAF ends with someone picking Mexico or the United States. And it's been that way since 1990. So I, I think there was just a general assumption that, yes, that in-prime generation, like I said, never showed up. But Tim Howard is still in goal. We're hoping we can get one more tournament out of him. Clint Dempsey is still leading the line. We just need him to play eight more top-level games in his career, right, between qualification and then the World Cup itself, and then we can let him go off in the sunset. Michael Bradley needs to keep his legs going. Um, <laughs> it's all of these sorts of, like, assumptions that a whole generation of players can defy aging for just one more year. And, and then they bring in Bruce Arena, who doesn't want to rotate the side, who goes through and has to play two games within four days, one in Florida, one in Trinidad and Tobago, and uses the exact same starting lineup in both, despite the massive flight, despite the, the tired legs in the first place. Like, I, I think any coach who would have played those two games within the same country would have switched the lineup. Almost any other coach would have looked and said, okay, our wingers can't go a full 90 in both games not even considering the, the flight across the Gulf. So um, I, I think it was arrogance. Uh, if, if I just had to pin it down on one thing, the talent was there. The, the, it's not that um, Panama was a better team, even throughout qualification. They had a couple of really fluky, like a, a goal that was given to them, even though the ball never crossed the line, that sort of stuff that got them into the World Cup. But the, USL, or the USA had failed. Just pure and simple. They, they failed. They should have qualified for that. And I think as a result, there's a little bit more, I hope it's sincere modesty. It might be false modesty uh, that is part of the team as a result. You say 18 is arrogance, is 22 is modesty, or is there a better hopeful more hopeful yeah i think it's for that team i think redemption's part of it but so many of the players are different really the only certain holdover from that team that started the game that ended up getting them knocked out of the world cup before it even started in trinidad and tobago the only player who's certain to play a role in this generation who started that night is christian pulisic and because you've got one player who is still not even in his prime, who is starting for Chelsea, who wears number 10 for them, the most hallowed jersey number in all of soccer. Um, 
I think that there's there's just a point to prove that that was like an aberration, that that was not the start of a trend, that that would be, um, that this is, this is a team that can qualify and can compete even though they are very young. I think that 22 is going to be um, about just just show up and do your work. Don't assume it'll come to you. Um, the young generation of players certainly seem much more motivated to challenge themselves at a higher level, whether you're talking about Weston McKinney playing for Juventus now, Pulisic, Gio Reyna playing regularly for Borussia Dortmund, Tyler Adams testing himself at RB Leipzig, making it to a Champions League semifinal. All of these players are really pushing themselves to a level you haven't seen the American player play at regularly before. Um, the question that will be asked of them is if they're ready for the grind of a qualification campaign and for the just the undeniable pressure of playing in a World Cup, but they have to get to that World Cup before they face that pressure at all. Yeah, no, it's a, I think it's super exciting times for U.S. soccer, um, you know, with the youth movement. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time where America has had so many um, of their own soccer stars playing prominent roles in Europe with huge clubs. Um, so I hope that will, you know, pay dividends a couple of years down the road when they're older, they're more experienced playing in huge, you know, Euro Cup games, Premier League games, yeah. Bundesliga games. So I think that should just go a long way for them. Um, but shifting a little bit from the U.S. national team, uh, our biggest star ever, arguably, Landon Donovan, um, is leading the San Diego Loyal now. Um, and they've been in the news the last couple of weeks um, for two of their recent matches um, for forfeiting them. Um, one of them after the match had ended and then one of them at halftime um, refusing to take the field after um, in the first match it was a race, racial slur. Um, and then the second match it was a homophobic slur. Um, just tell us, I mean, I know you've been covering it a lot, um, both the matches. Um, what kind of impact do you think uh, this will have on soccer going forward and then kind of in sports in general? Because I'm looking back at the history of sports, and I don't think I can find anything um, like this ever. This has been really an unprecedented uh, last couple of weeks for them. It's, it's certainly unprecedented within American soccer. Um, you see it a lot. If we're talking about racist behavior, a lot of it comes from fans, frankly. Uh, you will see every year or two an instance of racial abuse very similar to what Los Angeles Galaxy 2 had with Omar Ontiveros, their now former defender, using a racial slur against Elijah Martin of San Diego Loyal. And it, it's usually something around the lines of this word, and we know what the word is, this word means something different in my culture, um, and it's like a neutral term in my culture. And it's never, it, that's never an accept, acceptable excuse, but that's always the excuse that's given by a player who is caught uh, using a racial slur. Um, the homophobic slur, I mean, I, I think part of the reason that it's so rare, frankly, is there just aren't many publicly out members of the LGBTQ plus community who are playing men's professional sports, especially men's team sports. Uh, I mean, you, you pick your sport, you pick the NFL, MLB, NBA, players who come out tend to be either close to retiring or a player who, um, I mean, were, were them coming out in the case of like an RK Russell or a, um, uh, a Michael Sam, it ends up kind of costing them a career because teams suddenly get caught up in the stigma and all of these really dated unnecessary sort of assumptions about what would happen to a team if they signed um, a queer player. Uh, frankly, it's been 
So what ended up happening, like you said, the, the San Diego forfeited both, one after the fact in the instance of the racial abuse, uh, one mid-game at halftime where they were up 3-1 to one against Phoenix Rising. Uh, the AUSL, which is the league that San Diego is in, did not honor the forfeit request for the one after the game. They said the game was complete, you tied, you both get one point. They did now offer um, uh, authorize the forfeit for the mid-game because they didn't finish the game. So now that has gone down as a 3-0 win for Phoenix Rising, despite them losing at halftime by two, despite their player using a homophobic slur. Um, they're treating it as if like San Diego hadn't shown up that day at all or that they hadn't had enough players to play a game or something. Uh, and frankly, it's a major failure by the USL at this point because it's a league that tries to position itself and has made itself very open to interviews about how they are allowing their players to lead the discussion, especially on race um, and about equality in general and how that they want players to feel enabled to speak their values and clubs to be able to be parts of their community and kind of leading these discussions about a more diverse, equal society uh, instead of just being like a sports corporation that is an entertainment entity that plays once or twice a week and makes money off of that as a result. Um, they want to be more of a community thing, but frankly, they've let down their community. They've let down the whole country uh, and that league system. If you're looking at saying, well, okay, well, they didn't play the game, so we're going to still give a 3-0. I understand that you can't say it's 3-1 at halftime, therefore the game ends 3-1. I'm not, you know, like, I'm not disillusioned by any of that sort of stuff. Um, but just don't count the game at all. Just nullify the result. Phoenix didn't play an extra 45 minutes alone, right? Like, just say that game didn't happen, null and void, because now as a result, Phoenix, those three points, jumped them up the table over two teams. So as these playoffs, which start this weekend in the USL, uh, they will host every game up until the conference final. Uh, whereas before they would have been on the road. And the reason that they did that is because one of their players used a homophobic slur and the other team did the right thing and didn't want to play under those conditions. Um, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, I, I won't try to sugarcoat it and I won't try to be objective in this one. It, it's a very frustrating, disappointing um, sequence by Phoenix rising as a club, but also by the United soccer league. Um, that makes it very difficult to cover this postseason as just sports as usual because so much of it has been thrown off due to the actions of a Phoenix Rising player who's un currently under invest investigation and is um, on an administrative leave from the team. Yeah, and you had mentioned, you know, USL, the USL failing in this. I think a, a huge failure in addition to that was the Phoenix Rising, um, you know, at halftime, because Landon, you know, went to the coach and said, hey, we'll come back out for the second half if you sub out. I forget the player's name who threw out the slur. Um, and the coach refused. He's like, no, he's going to keep playing. So I think that, you know, Phoenix, you know, they could have met, you know, compromise and we could have finished this match and it wouldn't have been as big of a, you know, a story, but, you know, they obviously put, they put winning above, you know, uh, equality. And honestly, that's probably the bigger story here, right? And, and I came out a couple of weeks ago as bisexual, so I can talk about this being a member of the queer community working in sports. Um, like, it's... It's something where, like, we're called, like, I've been called a lot of stuff in just two weeks since I came out on Twitter. Like, it's, we hear this sort of stuff. It's it's something that we don't stand up, or, like, we, we don't just kind of sit down and take it, whatever. Like, we will stand up against it. That's 
part of where society is moving to. And I think that that's something that a lot of people, regardless of political affiliation, will understand that humans are humans and deserve to be treated as humans. Um, where it gets difficult then is when you have Rick Chance, the head coach of Phoenix, like you said, trying to defend his player blindly with no facts of the situation known without talking to the player at all and just say, nope, no slur was used. And there were just competing uh, was the excuse that he was giving. They were competing. Haven't you played soccer before Landon? Like this sort of stuff happens and trying to treat it as it is what it is. What can we do? Like that is appalling. That is, um, that is something that, will have a longer impact, I think, on the club's reputation as a whole, but on that coach in particular, than if, like you said, he had said, okay, if there's an accusation, like, we'll bring in someone else. How hard is that, right? right. And, and you can also look at it and say, like, they had another game coming up uh, in four days. So you could say, okay, well, we need him for that game anyway, too. Uh, and the playoffs, like, there's really no excuse that Chance was just like, no, I'm not pulling that player. It's That was as big of um, a slap in the face, I think, to the community uh, as anything that was said on the field that day. And the action in and of itself is just extremely disappointing. And, you know, it goes exactly against everything that this country is currently going through. And it was, I think, shocking to us when we first found out. We actually had uh, Jack, Jack Metcalf on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, hopefully this run up to the playoffs and, you know, they have a chance to get in. And, you know, we started following Jack a little bit closer and, you know, he put the post out after it all happened from the club. And it, it was, it threw us for a loop. And, and immediately we start kind of looking more into it, what exactly happened. You know, we got a chance to read your articles and kind of get that full in-depth of everything. And and it, it really is two things, Jeff. I, I, I suppose, you know, the disappointment in, you know, we can't recognize humans as humans and, and that be it. And then, you know, still especially as, as people who have been ingrained in athletics from such a young age that, you know, we understand, you know, winning can be the main thing, but now it cannot be the only thing. And it truly was disappointing to see Phoenix let that continue. And now, as you said, the, the most disappointing part now is they are essentially being rewarded for negative actions and right. it, it again I, I can't stop using the word disappointed but do you think that there's any way that you know USL steps in to try and fix some of these issues they've had a chance I mean they've had time right like it's this isn't something that happened last night and they're reacting they're in the middle of an investigation and now they have through Colin Martin speaking to the athletic and other places now and giving his story I think on his own personal account since our report went live that whole account is public. Like, and it's, it's lined up with what a lot of different people involved in that game from both teams have said. Um, but there, it, it, I just haven't seen the sort of interest from the league, frankly. I think at this point, the league is just hoping that people forget about it. And, and there's a lot of things in lower division soccer, if I'm being completely honest, that people will forget about. Like, it's the 15th regular season game of Phoenix Rising in 2020. So it's not a playoff game. It's not a first division game. It's not a nationally televised game. It was nationally streamed on ESPN Plus, but it's not something that a casual sports fan saw. Um, so I think that there's a part of it where they're just assuming that being second division soccer in the U.S., people are going to stop talking about it. And 
they've made their decision. The playoffs start this weekend. Phoenix, apparently, according to one report from a Phoenix-based writer, said that Phoenix had petitioned for the game result to change and the USL said no. I don't know if any of that's true, but frankly, it does whether or not they petitioned, like you said, it's on the league and you didn't, you shouldn't have needed a petition for the league to start that dialogue. And they haven't done that. And that's, um, that, that is very difficult to sort of process just how a league can see this happening, say all the right things to the athletic in terms of, we won't stand for this. We're going to make punishments more harsh, more severe moving forward for hate speech. We're going to, um, make sure everyone has sensitivity training ahead of the 21 season, whether they're players or staff or owners. Um, you can say all that stuff. That's great. You still gave Phoenix three points because one of their players used a homophobic slur in a game they were losing against an opponent. That's a failure, pure and simple. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I certainly commend what the Loyal have done. You know, those, their uh, decision for those two matches um, certainly brought a, a ton of awareness um, to the issues at hand. Um, and I feel like on social media, from what I've been seeing, a lot of people have been applauding them for their efforts. Have you seen anything that's kind of any negative, you know, pushback from any writers or anything like that on, on the internet? Not really. Um, if I'm being completely honest, there hasn't been a ton of that. I think that there's, what you've seen more is like the, the, the questions of like, oh, it's, it's just words you know, that kind of old tired excuse and that old whatever in the heat of the moment, people say things they don't mean, which is what the coach also ended up saying. Um, but even that line of thought, which used to be so prevalent and, you know, there's, it, that hasn't shown up. It really hasn't. I think that, I mean, like I, I've known Colin Martin for five years now. Um, I, I covered him when he was in major league soccer. He was with Minnesota United. So for three years, I mean, I covered his team primarily with that beat. Um, so it's not a player I'm not familiar with either a player that I only know through like professional settings. Like we've just had other conversations, um, on the side, uh, which probably isn't a surprise given both of us being part of the queer community. Um, but I, I think that like, I, I don't think that sort of thought that it's cancel culture or that it's, it's, it's a moment where we want to see the coach fired and never given a job or that. Junior Fleming should never play a professional. Like, that's unrealistic. If I'm being honest, like, it's not, and it's probably not actually the important lesson here. Like, it's education. It's Rick Shantz admitting he was wrong for blindly defending and saying it was, should be acceptable parts of competition. It's Junior Fleming saying that he used a term that he shouldn't have, that it's a term that is very prevalent um, in a country like Jamaica that has a very high number of homophobic murders every single year. Um, like it, it's admitting that there's an education portion, that there's personal growth and improvement that's being done that you want to learn um, to become a better part of the global world. Do that, seriously do that. And that's more important to me than anyone getting canceled. That's more important to Colin Martin, that people are aware of what went wrong and how they can better themselves and the world around them. That is a million times more important than just saying like fire that person. And that's, even that work hasn't been said. There hasn't been any sort of like Rick Shantz, the head coach saying like, I will make sure to learn for the betterment of myself and my team totally separate from this situation. Not even that. So that's, that's another really frustrating part of this all so far. And it, it is frustrating. I, we are all human. We all make mistakes, but if we can't learn from those things, then 
you know, what's the point, you know, if we're just going to keep going in circles and making the same mistakes, you know, you can understand, you know, sometimes it's tougher for leagues to make decisions and you don't want to make a political statement. You don't want to get down this road, but I think it's in everyone's best interest to at the very least is hardline this to say, this is a human issue that this mm -hmm. is, you know, not taking people's, you know, feelings, thoughts, whatever you want to say, that you're treating them differently. And that's everything that goes against what everything in the past, you know, three months we've had to deal with. And yeah. again, disappointing. And Jeff, I, I think you talked to that education piece, which is so important. Um, do you think that is kind of number one and mm -hmm. move forward? Or is there something else too that, you know, you'd like to see happen as well? Yeah, I think that that's most important just because that's the longest lasting. I think that there's also a part of it where you can say that this work should be done in all sports, right? You should you can say that like the fact that Colin Kaepernick has not been an NFL quarterback, um, despite being so obviously better than players who are given contracts, um, is a sign of failure um, from the NFL. You can say that it, it happens in all sports, right? But I think that there's a unique obligation when you are the world's game and when you brand yourself and openly embrace the fact that you have people from every culture in the world who follow your sport, and it's not even hyperbole. Like, it's not like baseball saying it's a worldly game, even though, like, most of Europe doesn't care about it, and, like, the west half of Asia doesn't play it. And, like, you know, like, you can point to a large swath of the map that has no idea how to, like, what baseball is, and it's not a major relevant sport. You know, it's not cricket or whatever. Like, you can point to that, but soccer is truly global. And because it is global, there is an implication and an understanding that it should be a game that's accessible for everyone in the world, a game that is like stands for um, a broader kind of global society and stuff. And you can't push all of those sorts of, you know, our game is fair play and say no to racism and all of these slogans that clubs and federations and leagues will put out year over year it's hollow words if you're just gonna say like look the player says he didn't do it uh our hands are tied i guess we're just gonna assume that everything's fine and dandy and that's where it gets frustrating so i think that there's also it it's not just it, it's education is number one but i think accountability and people not being so anxious over a possible punishment as a reason to not try to do that work and to try to turn themselves into the victim as a result, it's needing to combat that sort of fear and own up to it to make all of this just kind of work better if we're talking about society. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, have you spoken to anyone with the, any of the players with the Loyal, you know, with their, for their reactions the last couple of uh, matches that have been forfeited? Have you got any comments from them? Yeah, um, I mean, I got a lot of comment from Colin Martin um, in the piece on The Athletic that we ran on Thursday. I think overall there's there's a sense that, like, their season, like, this is obviously the most bitter way that you could end a season because um, it happened in their final two games, the racial abuse and then the homophobic slur. Uh, but you have, like, players who feel strong in their convictions, players who don't think that they handled this wrong, players who feel that – you know, like, yes, it is more important than a game. And again, if I'm being honest, I mean, like, it's, it's second division soccer in the US. So I, I think that people who are trying to put this as the sport above societal progress, really miss the point of what sports are for, you know, it's like Sean Doolittle said that, you know, sports are a reward for a functioning society. But 
like I don't think you're ever truly going to get to that sort of like utopic place. So then you're looking at how do we then become a conduit for uh, promoting that sort of cultural growth that is so necessary in our cities, in our own markets, and just focus on home, right? And I think that that sort of work isn't being done, but San Diego can say that they have been doing that work, that they have been taking those steps, that they have been truly working to be role models within their communities for how you can move these sorts of things forward. Um, so they feel really good about that. Um, I mean, they, they arguably should have been in the playoffs right now. Uh, they would have lost on a tiebreaker and they would have finished third in their group, so they wouldn't have actually made it. But the, the fact that the conversation isn't about we were so close and now we get to go into this offseason hungry and thinking that year two is going to be huge. And you're ending on this note of like, is it going to be better? <laughs> like, like is, this is the first time in eight professional years that Colin Martin has been called a homophobic slur. Does he have to worry about that again? Does Elijah Martin, who was called the racial slur, or any black player on that team, do they worry about it? Like, it, it's all of this sort of stuff that now just kind of hangs over their heads like a super like dark cloud that just won't go away, um, where it really does kind of coat the off season in a different light. And it, it will be very interesting. I, I, I owe Landon Donovan a call, and we'll, we'll figure out kind of for him what's next. But it's um, definitely not the way any team wants to end its season. But in a way, it's, it, it has the potential to be far more impactful than any pair of games of soccer can be. And that's what you just hope the impact is there, the education, the, the mindfulness, the thoughtfulness that, you know, hopefully that people will think differently, that in, it's no more heat of the moment. I said it, it's no matter what, that doesn't leave my mouth. And I think the more times and more people that can start to even think that way or have that mindset you know, that will be hopefully some good that has come from a very difficult situation. But Jeff, we really thank you for, you know, sharing all of this and, mm -hmm. and your perspective, obviously. Um, but we want to kind of end where we began in a sense and kind of what's the best piece of advice you could give to those who are interested in journalism. You know, the name of this is The Other Pros, you know, not everybody is going to play soccer, you know, it's clearly not us, um, <laughs> right, but right. you know, there is other ways to be involved in athletics and now working for the athletic. Um, now, obviously your answer is just go do the student newspaper. That was easy, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. And it worked out so well for me to skip that. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I think it's that you're going to need to get the experience somehow. Um, I mean, I've got a lot, man. I've got a lot of advice I think I could give or that I do give. And, and college students do reach out to me a fair amount. And I will always take the time for that call. That's no problem. So feel free to, my DMs are open. Feel free to hit me up if you need 15 minutes of my time. Um, but I, I think it's just things like, don't assume it will be handed to you. Don't assume that because you got a degree from Yale, from Missouri, from you pick your J school, that it means that you're going to be working for the New York Times in two years. You can't go in with that assumption or you're going to get lapped by your competitors. Um, I mean, it, there's just like a, there's no part of my skill set. Like, you know, you can talk about like, is it, is it the writing comprehension? Did the playwright degree help me in a way? Did my knowledge of soccer help me? Like if I'm purely looking and I'm a very, I'm a very, um, prolific interviewer. I'm someone who does a lot of interviewing for my work. 
a big part of that and relating to sources in general as someone who breaks news as well it is empathy it is just these basic human skills of like conversing of remembering like if someone brings up that they have a family remember that make a quick little note of that so you can ask how the kids are doing how the wife's doing how was this vacation all this stuff because then it's not just a i'm only contacting you because i need you sort of thing and, and, and it's not like you have to become best friends with all of these people, but that understanding of it helps make the rest of your job so much easier if you are reliant on outside sources. If you're not, keep writing. And it, it's a sort of thing where like, it, it, it sucks, but inevitably you're gonna have to write for, for no pay for a bit. It's very rare that someone will write and say that they never wrote something for free. But also like the flip side of it is don't, don't value yourself to be doing free work for too long. Like there are val there is monetary value in your words. If you're at a publication that has any sort of advertiser revenue or any sort of paid subscription base, anything like that, like you shouldn't be writing for them for free. You really shouldn't. Um, and most places will operate upfront and say like, we will offer you freelance money. Like, I could, you know, like, like this publication will offer this, this, the other ones will go with this. Some will say like, it's by, you know, we need five or like, we have like a roster kind of the, I think Tronk had this sort of thing where it was like, we need you to write eight pieces. Um, but in exchange, this is how much you'll get. So you're more writing for a target rather than the kind of paper, the head, like you will see for a lot of publications. Um, but most are upfront by saying like, yes, this is paid. Yes, this is paid. But if some of them try to nickel and dime you and say like, look, you're young, like, this first one will be for exposure. The second and third though, if we take them, they're not gonna take your second and third. They're not, like they just want one free piece and they're gonna keep doing this with as many young writers as possible. Um, advocate for yourself. Don't apologize because you're young. Like I'm very young for this industry, for the job I have. I'm not, like it's not something I had, it, it really isn't. It's just that you keep doing that work and you keep proving that it's a strong long-term investment by the, your publication and by your readers, frankly, because they'll end up following you from publication to publication as you make those sorts of moves early in your career. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a humility piece and there's a confidence piece that you're constantly kind of combating in a role like this, but really trying to check both sides of that to make sure that they're healthy. Um, does help to make sure you're doing your best work as a whole. And I, I think just the last thing too is like, it's an industry that so easily falls into the sort of competitive nature of society, whether you're talking about sports in particular, or if you talk about politics, uh, which tend to overlap more than you think. Um, like you're not trying to, I've yet to meet a single reader who says, I only have time for one outlet and I will only read one voice per day on a topic and I do not want to hear anything else about my favorite sports team. That, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Be gracious with your citing of other reports. If you're using information that was reported elsewhere, don't just say like, Oh, we also have a source 10 minutes or two days after another outlet, put it out first. Don't do that. A lot of people still do that. And that's where you get sort of infighting within the industry. Like, we all need to bolster each other at this point. We all need to be supporting each other or else this whole thing is gonna crumble. Um, and it is tenuous, like I won't lie to you, like it is a very, uh, as the newspapers are showing, like it, it is not, it isn't a moment of change we'll say. Um, but people still want to read, people still want to watch if you are on the video side of it. Um, just don't be exclusionary in how you put out your work. I think all impressive and, and true words that actually probably fit any walk of life, forget about sports industry. So thank you for that, Jeff. Yeah. Of course.
Really appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Um, gave us a lot of uh, good insight into, you know, the, the soccer industry as a whole, you know, the men's, the national team and, uh, you know, all the issues that are surrounding soccer right now. Um, really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Yeah, you, you as well. Thanks again, Jeff. Yep. All right. That was our interview with Jeff Reuter. Thank you to Jeff for coming on to talk with us about soccer. Um, you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Reuter. Um, and you can follow him on The Athletic by subscribing to that publication to find out um, and learn more about all things soccer um, from his perspective. Um, thanks for joining in for this week. Uh, we'll be sure to follow us on Instagram at the other pros for all things, um, upcoming episodes and details regarding future guests. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, please email us at the other pros at gmail.com. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week.